0: Luke chapter 2, Bill stole a little bit of my thunder reading the same passage, but I'm sure it'll be just as good the second time as it was first. Luke chapter 2, and this is in the Advent season, or the Christmas season as we call it, this is our final message. The past three or four weeks we've been following the story leading up to the birth of Christ, And today we'll look at the actual birth. Very familiar passage, and it's good that it's familiar for many of us, but we'll try to break past the familiarity to see the actual truth that's there. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, we'll read down to verse 20. And the Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. The census first took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. So it was, when the angels had gone away from the men to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those things which, uh, and all those who heard it, marvelled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. If you're familiar with the King James Version, you probably stumbled a few times. I had to practice this one and I'm not, in this case, I'm not sure which one's better. Uh, Linus would disagree with this reading if you watch Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, But the message here, what does this story have to offer us? What does Christmas have to offer? Everyone loves Christmas, or at least the idea of Christmas. What does Christmas have to offer us today? What does this story give to us? What this story does is not just an origin story of who Jesus was or where he came from. What what Christmas gives to us is clarity, perspective on power, on weakness, on suffering. Christmas pulls back the curtain of life and gives us hope. Most of us have the spirit of Christmas or the feeling of Christmas. It's a very good feeling, isn't it? This passage isn't about good feelings. This passage is about suffering. That's what we're going to see here. It's pulling back the curtain of the world. So we're going to see how how the world looks with our eyes. Then we're going to see how the world looks with our ears. And yes, that is a paradox. And then how we're going to respond to this. So look at the first part. Verses 1 to 7, how the world looks with our eyes. When we look at the world, what do we see? Well, what's interesting is verses 1 to 7 require no faith to believe. Look what it says. A very powerful man named Caesar Augustus put out a census. A couple that were pregnant went to, to the town to register, and she had a baby there. Right? There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing supernatural here. Pretty reasonable story. It's the way the world works. No one who reads this thinks that this is abnormal. What it's saying is the Bible's not once upon a time. Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right? Those are, those are ways to tell legends and stories. This is saying it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. We know who Caesar Augustus was. It's saying this happened for real and let me tell you how it went. Luke's a historian. You read Luke chapter one. He says, I, I took a bunch of eyewitness accounts, and I put them together for you. So he says here, in this world, there was a very powerful man named Caesar Augustus. Isn't that how it works? There's always somebody at the top. If you've seen the world, you've seen that. At your job, in the government. There's always somebody at the top. And in this case, it's Caesar Augustus. Now, who was Caesar Augustus? He's a historical figure. You probably learned about him. He was the uh, great nephew of Julius Caesar. You heard of Julius Caesar? He was his successor. He was the first emperor of Rome. He sort of united it as the, uh, as the emperor. He was also a dictator, a benevolent dictator. But when you said Caesar Augustus, you were talking about the first man in the Roman Empire who had total control. And the Roman Empire was pretty big. It was really big. And he had control over all of it. But more than that, people actually liked him. Isn't that unique? Someone who has all the power and people actually look up to him? They thought he was the son of a god. A comet, I think it was Haley's Comet, I'm not sure, passed over during the early parts of his, of his reign, and it was given as a sign that he was the son of a god. And this comet was a sign. He, had, he declared himself the high priest of the people. He represented the people to God. This is Julius Caesar we're talking about. And then he uh, was called the bringer of peace. Have you ever heard of Pax Romana? Roman peace? If you were born at this time in the Roman Empire, it was the best time to be born so far. There were wars before this. It was a dangerous world to live in. Uh, Caesar Augustus came in and he instituted a peace that lasted for hundreds of years. You could travel between different states and different countries and not get killed, which back at this time was a big deal. You lived in peace. You weren't robbed all the time. There weren't wars going on. So he brought a unique period in history where there was peace in the Roman Empire. And so they called him the bringer of peace, the the emperor of peace. Do you see the irony here? Do you see the comparison? When you normally say things like son of God, king of peace, High priest. Who are we usually talking about? We're usually talking about Jesus. So what Luke is saying here is, here's what the world looks like. Here's what peace looks like to the world. Safe roads, good jobs, no wars, economic prosperity, peace and order. And Caesar brought it. He had real influence. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is sitting in a room, writes something on a piece of paper, actually probably says it to somebody. And look what happens. All went to be registered to the whole world, the whole Roman Empire. One man makes a decision, and everyone in the empire has to move. That's power, isn't it? Power that we want. When you say something, don't you want people to do it? I would like this to happen. You want people to do it. You want people like this on your side. You want to be friends with powerful people. You want your candidate to win. Why? Because that's where power is. Power is in the government. The government can do what you want. So this is nothing unique. Luke's just laying out how the world works. Powerful people control other people. Powerful people are set up by other people to influence the world, to make things happen. If you don't like it, that's the way the world is. But there's another side to it that we all know maybe better. If there's power at the top, there's weakness at the other end. See, the more power someone has, the less other people have. The more power the government has, the less power the people have. The more powerful that individuals have, the less the community has. And so you see that here. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee with his wife to be registered. Why'd they go? Because they wanted to? If you're eight, nine months pregnant, it's a 90-mile trip on foot between Nazareth and Bethlehem. They didn't want to go. Why'd they go? Because someone told them to. They said, you have to do it. You know why they went? There's only two reasons to take a census. Conscription for the army, or taxes. So you're A newlywed couple, eight months pregnant. Your first big trip together is to go register to pay taxes. And you're already really poor. Is that the kind of life we're looking forward to? But that's the way it is, isn't it? There's only two things we can depend on in this world, death and taxes. And the Bible's like, yep. Here's the story. Here's God's people paying taxes, being controlled, by somebody else being forced to do things they don't want to do, because as much as we like the spirit of Christmas, that's the way it is. You get pushed around by people in power. Some people more than others. And we look around the world, we see it's so full of oppression and heartache and abuse of power, strong people hurting weak people, taking advantage of weak people. And the Bible says, yeah, that's exactly the way it is. The Bible is as realistic as it can get. It says, look at the weakness of these people. They're suffering. So we think of Christmas in an nativity scene and the shepherds and the angels, right? It's great, isn't it? She, it says the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth a firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger for there was no room for them in the end. Isn't that nice? Now, that's brutal. You're eight or nine months pregnant, you have to travel to a city where you don't know people, then you go into labor. But the, the inn or the place where you're gonna stay is so crowded you can't stay there. So you're in labor, you have to go to where the animals eat and have a baby and put them in the manger where the animals eat. That's brutal. That's a worst case scenario. So a lot of us have kids, or have, been, or have friends who have kids, or family members who have kids, you know when you go into labor, it's sort of like time stops, and everyone around you stops, and it's sort of like, no matter what you're doing, the person in labor is the priority. Everything stops. Look at the opposite of this. No one stopped for them. No one gave up their spot. They said, I'm sorry, I don't care that you're in labor. There's no room for you. It's just the way it is. So go out to the barn, go out to the cave or the stall or whatever it was, and have your baby out there. That's not the spirit of Christmas. That's suffering. That's oppression. That's a hard life. Mary alone with Joseph. So, Mary alone giving baby for the first time. They don't know what they're doing. The fear involved, the stress, the anxiety, the dirt, right? There's no running water. Even if there were animals there, that would make it worse, wouldn't it? The last thing I would do is be in a labor room with cows. So the suffering here is made worse because no one cares. No one cares that Mary and Joseph are having a baby. If they cared, she wouldn't have to have it in the barn, Why don't they care? Because Mary and Joseph are nobodies. If they were rich, this wouldn't have happened. How do we know? Because we know how the world works. Rich people don't have babies in barns. They don't have no room in the inn. You have money, you get a place to stay. You ever seen it where people go to a restaurant, oh, there's no tables, but the person has money or influence and suddenly a table opens up. Why? Because power makes things happen. Power runs the world. Power gets you a place to stay. Power gets you what you need. It gives you comfort. It gives you influence. Mary and Joseph had nothing. They had no power. No one cared. It was insignificant. And that's just the way the world is. That's the way Christianity is. This is the beginning of Christianity. Henry Nguyen says, somehow I keep expecting loud and impressive events to convince me and others of God's saving power. But over and over again, I'm reminded that spectacles, power plays, and big events are the ways of the world. The work of our salvation takes place in the midst of a world that continues to shout and scream and overwhelm us with its claims and promises. But the promise is hidden in the shoot that sprouts from the stump, a shoot that hardly anyone notices. He's referring to that passage we read earlier today, where a branch would spring up. You ever cut down a tree and you come back later and there's a little sprout coming off? That's what he's talking about. We keep on expecting God to make a big event to show us how great things are. But here's the story. A young couple in the back of a barn, no one notices and no one cares. That's the story of Christmas. That's how God works. And accepting Christianity is accepting that. But it's easy to accept that because that's how our lives are. When you have a problem with your taxes, guess who doesn't care? The government. They don't care about your tax problems. I mean, I hope there's no doctors here, friends who have doctors. You know who doesn't care about when you're in labor? Doctors, right? It's not their baby. Doctors do their own thing. People in power don't really care about other people. That's our lives, trying to get our boss to give us something. Trying to get our taxes, trying to get the house sale, trying to do all these things, and the powers that be don't care and do what they want anyway. So that's how the world looks with our eyes. But how does the world really look? If that's what we see, is that it? That's where we look at the next verses. Verses 8 to 14, it's how the world looks with our ears. Can you see the world with your ears? Yes. In other words, there's a message that tells you how the world really looks. You can't see it, but someone tells you this is what's really happening. There's a curtain over the way the world looks, and someone needs to pull that curtain back and show us. Well, the only person that can see on the other side of the curtain is God. We can't see on the other side of the curtain. So what God does in the story is he says, I'm going to tell you what's on the other side of the curtain. I'm going to show you what the world looks like even though you can't see it. And so he sends a message and they're in the same country shepherds and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. Angel means messenger. He's bringing a message from the other side, the other side of the curtain saying things have happened that you can see. Caesar's in power. People are traveling to get taxed. You can see all that. Babies are born, all that. You can see it. But let me tell you what that really means. Let me tell you what's going on. This is the key to Christianity. Christianity. It's saying what you see is not as real as what you can't see. There's more to this world than what you can see. If you don't believe that, you can't be a Christian. But if you do believe it, it changes everything. There's a movie that came out a year ago called Doctor Strange, superhero movie. I'll lose half of you on this, but I'll get the other half. And in the movie, Doctor Strange, the character, is an actual doctor. He's a neurosurgeon. Very talented, very skilled. But then he breaks his hands and he can't do it anymore. He goes looking for help. Spends all his money, can't find it. Finally goes to Nepal and finds a what's called the ancient one. And he's a little skeptical. And she tells him, I can show you things like spirit worlds and, and, and powers. And he reacts like a typical Westerner and says, you're crazy. She says to him, you're a man looking at the world through a keyhole. You spent your whole life trying to widen that keyhole, to see more, to know more. And now on hearing that it can be widened in ways you can't imagine, you reject the possibility. That's what the Bible says. Let me show you what you can't see. Dr. Strange responds in a very rational and Western world way of responding. He says, no, I reject it because I don't believe in fairy tales or the power of belief. There is no such thing as spirit. We are made of matter and nothing more. You're just another tiny, momentary speck within an indifferent universe. Because that's what your eyes tell you, isn't it? That's what the, your eyes tell you. You're just another speck who was born and will die. She says, You think you know how the world works? You think that this material universe is all there is? What is real? What mysteries lie beyond the reach of your senses? You can't trust your eyes. Now, at that point, she smacks him in the head and sends him on a journey to see that there's other things. But we don't get that. We don't get to see what happens. See, he only believed it when he saw it. What's happening here is somebody else saw it and is telling us about it. That's what the angels are doing. They're saying, I've seen that there's a bigger world, and I'm going to tell you about it. But isn't that what we want? Don't we want there to be more than just powerful people oppressing weak people? Wouldn't we like for there to be more than that? Amen. Than just oppression and heartache and death and taxes? Amen. And just meaningless, go wake up every day and just get through the day until it ends? Because I don't see anything else. I don't see anything else. I don't see dead people living. I don't see life after death. I don't see the good winning and the bad losing. The angels tell a different story. And that's what Hebrews tells us too. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Wait a minute, evidence that you can't see? How's that hold up in court? By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so the things which are seen were were not made of things which are visible. The things we can see were made with things that were not seen. Well, how do you know that if you can't see it? You have to take somebody's word for it. That's it. If you can't see it, you got to take somebody's word for it. And that's what the angels are doing. So the angels come to the shepherds and say, here's what's really happening. They give them an unexpected, shocking revelation. They say, surprise, it's not anything like you think it is. Shepherds out on the hills at night watching their flocks. Kind of low-class position, isn't it? Then the angels show up and say, everything's different than it looks. And they gave him a message. Uh, it says, then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So here's the message. Number one, God is in a manger. Literally. Shepherds on the hill, God is right now is laying in a manger right near you. Would you... Find that unusual? God is laying in a manger right now. Doesn't sound like God to me. God, first of all, he's a baby. The creator of the universe is now a baby laying in a feeding trough in a barn in the town right next to me. I don't know about that. But that's what it says. Look at here. It says, do not be afraid, uh, for there is born to you in the city city of David a Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. Now, if, if the angel had just said, who is Christ, The shepherds would have expected that. The Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, had been chosen a long time ago and promised to be given to Israel. They were waiting for the chosen one. So the angels have said the chosen one has been born. The shepherds have been like, finally, it's happening. The chosen one of God. God has chosen someone and has sent them to us. That's what we've been waiting for. But that's not what the angel says. He doesn't say the one who is Christ of the Lord. He said Christ the Lord. that's Yahweh, that's Jehovah, that's creator God, is also the anointed one. He's also the chosen one. So the chosen one that's going to be sent to you is God. If you're a first century Jew, that just blows your mind. That's harder to believe than angels speaking to you. See, a lot of us, a lot of secular people and even Christian people, if someone told you that an angel spoke to them, you wouldn't believe them, would you? an angel came to me and gave me some truth. You'd be like, ah, really? Can we be friends and not agree that that happened? But it'd be even harder for a Jew to hear an angel say to them, the Messiah is God, and he's laying in a manger. But that's the message. And just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean it's not true. See, that's whole. about, if you pull back the curtain, there's stuff that you didn't know was on the other side. Didn't know was possible. But it's not just God in the world. See, I think we all like the idea of God in the world. He's here with us. He comforts us. He shares our suffering. He's he's not distant. He's with us. Which is important, but how does that change anything? I don't need just God next to me while I pay my taxes, while I'm being oppressed, while I'm suffering. What do we really need? God to change it. Isn't that what we want? It's not just sympathy. It's fixed things. And that's what the angel says. For there's born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, God came down to this earth and was born in a manger. Why? To suffer with us? Yes. But more importantly, God is here on a mission to save the world forever. See, Christ is not just your buddy. Christ, the Messiah, the Old Testament Messiah, the chosen one that's been prophesied, was a warrior. That's how he's portrayed, with a sword. With a sword and a shield, fighting. And what the angel is saying is that warrior has been born. He's here. And what do warriors do? They go on quests. They go on missions. They fight for what's good. And so Jesus is born as a warrior to do what? To save everybody. For good. You see... People have been trying to save the world for a long time, and what happens? They save it for a little while. We fought the Nazis, and we beat the Nazis, and then what happened? Russia. Then what happened? ISIS. Now we've defeated ISIS. Guess what's going to happen next? I don't know. Something. If you read Lord of the Rings, Gandalf says this to Frodo. He says um, they're going to defe- they thought the evil had been defeated a thousand years before, and Frodo's like, we beat it. And Gandalf says, always after a defeat and arrest, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. That's prophecy right there. You may have killed Hitler, but Stalin's right around the corner. You may have paid your taxes this year, but next year's right around the corner. You may have got that tax break, but the next bill's coming. You see, evil just keeps on reshaping itself, coming back in different forms. We d- that's why Caesar Augustus could have been the best Christian in the world and it wouldn't have been enough. See, Roman peace was real, but where is it now? It's gone. So what this is saying is there's a Savior who is God, and when God comes down to save us, he does it for good, once for all. He doesn't continue to save us because he defeats evil. So the Savior, the warrior king is born in a manger, and it's God himself. Because if you have to have somebody to fight for you on this earth, how about God? God in the flesh. That's the revelation that they gave to the shepherds. So when the shepherds go, what do they see in the manger? A little baby. Doesn't look like anything, does it? But the angels say, no, it is not. It's God himself. Looks like a little baby, but it's God the warrior come to save us all. So how do you respond to this? How do you respond to Christmas? You look at the world, you see it's bad, you look at your life, it's bad. You hear a message that there's more going on, that God has come into this world to save us. What do you do about it? Well, here's what they did. In verse 15 and 20, you see the response, their response to the revelation, which is a model for our response. You have to see the need. If you don't think there's a need, then you don't need a Savior. So look what it says here in verse 10. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Isn't that great? It says, And the Son of those with the angels, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Oh, that's great. But the message was, There's a Savior come to fix things. And it's for all people, which means. All people need a Savior. If we didn't need God, God showing up is no big deal. Christmas has no meaning unless we're in a mess. Otherwise, it's just a fairy tale about, or even even if it was true, who cares? It's a nice story. Unless we're in a mess and we need someone to show up to help us. So it's good news to all people because all people need a Savior. Christmas is based on receiving. Not giving. If you were here on Wednesday night, that's what the play was about. Isn't that, this is the spirit of giving, the season of giving? No, it's not. Look at the story. Who's giving here? God's giving. What are the people doing? Nothing. They're just walking around. They're just showing up. Right? Mary and Joseph, they just walk into town. She has a baby. The shepherds are just standing on a hill. Then they just walk over and look into a, sh- into a manger. They're not doing anything. They're not providing any help. All they're doing is receiving. This is what Christmas is about, but we don't like that, because if I only can receive, then I'm not good enough to give, and I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea of being at the bottom of the chain, being someone with nothing to offer. Here's something from a guy named Rabbi Goldberg, he's a Jew he says, as a Jew, he's impressed. He's given his account of the story. He's impressed in reading the account of the nativity by how utterly passive the actors are. You see, from his point of view, he says that the Old Testament is full of leaders, prophets, kings, priests, sent by God, often unwillingly, to save his people. Think of Moses. We're going through the book of Exodus. What was happening in the book of Moses? God is saying, you need to go and do this. And he kind of prods Moses, and finally Moses steps forward and takes the rod. and Aaron, they do miracles, and they sort of lead the people out of Egypt. Think of the prophets urging people to do the right thing. Kings setting up kingdoms, fighting enemies. That's Old Testament is awful about people doing stuff. Then and so, so this rabbi says, that's what I'm used to. I'm a Jew. I'm an Old Testament Jew. I see people doing things, actors in the play. He says, but then I read this story. And he goes, as a non-Christian, all I see are people standing around waiting, receiving. They're not leading. They're not freeing. They're just waiting. They're passive. That's us. God doesn't need anything from us. We need everything from him. Which means Christmas is about receiving. There's uh, guy, Will Willimon, says this, and consider what we do at Christmas, the so-called season of giving. We enjoy thinking of ourselves as basically generous, Benevolent, giving people. That's one reason why everyone, even the nominally religious, loves Christmas. Christmas is a season to celebrate our alleged generosity. Throw some money in that Salvation Army, buy gifts for other people, you know, be a little bit nicer to everyone. Ebenezer Scrooge, that's the story of a Christmas to us. A really old mean man who realizes that there's more to life than money, and so becomes a generous person. And everyone loves a Christmas carol, helps Tiny Tim, sends him a turkey. We all know that the real spirit of Christmas is bad people learning to be giving people. But he says, yet I suggest that we are better givers than getters. We like to give more than we receive, not because we are generous people, but because we are proud, arrogant people. We prefer to think of ourselves as givers, powerful, competent, self-sufficient, capable people, Whose goodness motivates us to employ some of our power, competence, and gifts to benefit the less fortunate. Which is a direct contradiction of the biblical count of the first Christmas. The first Christmas is weak people who have nothing to offer and God giving them what they need. They couldn't save themselves. They couldn't defeat anything. They couldn't do anything. And so God gives. He gives a warrior. He gives a Messiah. He gives the chosen one. He gives a Savior. He gives himself. And what do the people do? They receive it. But you can't receive it until you think you need it. And we, with our money and with our comfortable life and with sort of conflict-free culture, a lot of times, we can disillusion ourselves and convince ourselves we're basically good people who just need to give more. This is not a message about giving. This is a message that says you've got nothing to give. Whatever you give your kids tomorrow, they don't need it. Whatever you give this church, we don't need it. If you think church is all about money, you've got nothing to give to God that he needs. You don't need to be more giving. We don't need to be more giving. We need to be more humble. We need to receive more. We need to recognize that there's nothing that we have in our possession that can really help anybody else, and that everything that's important is from God to us. It's the Christmas of receiving. That's the spirit of Christmas in a Christian sense. But how do you know that? Because it doesn't look that way. Look what they did. So when the angels had gone away from them in heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. What did they see? Just a baby. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. They didn't go tell people that they saw a baby. Everyone knew there was a baby. They told them what they had heard about the baby. Then the shepherds returned, and glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, as it was told to them. Here's the response. What you see is real, and what you can't see is real. Are you going to believe it? Are you going to believe what the Bible tells you about yourself? That you're weak and in need? Are you going to believe what the Bible tells you about Jesus, that he's a savior, that he's God? You're never going to see any evidence of it. Will you still believe it, though? Will you still believe that this is true when there's no evidence. Here's the dark side of the story. Guess what happened to the shepherds after they saw Jesus? Nothing. They went back to their sheep that probably ran away from them while they weren't watching them, and they lived out their lives in poverty. What happened to Mary and Joseph? Nothing. She's just a girl with an illegitimate child in a poverty-stricken country. That's it. There's no happy ending here. It's just suffering. But there's the message of hope. Hope only comes to you when you're suffering. If you're not suffering, you don't need hope. You've got it good. It's when you're suffering that you need to know that there's something past the suffering. So the, the, the shepherds rejoice They said the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God, not because their life was different, but because there was something beyond their life now. There was hope now. There was a future that was better than the present. That's what we need right now, while we're suffering. There's something beyond it. Hope is waiting while you're suffering. That's what Christians have to offer the world. Not a change in the way the world works. We can't offer the world change. We can offer them hope after the world. You see, people are dying right now. What do we have to tell them? You're gonna die, and you're gonna suffer. But I've been told that after you die, it gets better. That means something, if it's true. Do you believe it's true? How do you know it's true? (laughs) Because Jesus was born on this earth for a reason. He wasn't born to have a good life or change the world while he lived in it. He was born to suffer. He was born into suffering. He lived in suffering and he died suffering. That's his life. Born in poverty, born in oppression, lived in oppression and died under oppression. Look at this. It says you will be a sign that a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. How is that a sign? Because we know how the rest of the story goes. And Luke tells us that the next time Jesus is wrapped in clothes and laid down, he's dead. Nothing changed for Jesus. He was born into suffering, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, and he died in suffering, wrapped in linen, laid in a cave. How does that give us hope? If he's a savior and he suffered and died, those two have to go together somehow. Do you believe that he's a savior? Do you believe that he suffered and died? Then he must have saved us by suffering and dying. That's the hope. Not that suffering goes away, but that somebody took the suffering we can't take. You see, you can suffer if you've got something to look forward to. You can die if you think the life afterward is better. You can live in this world if this suffering means something. That's what the Christmas story tells us. It does mean something because the baby that was born here suffered and died for us to give us purpose, to give us hope. If Jesus was not God, then his suffering was meaningless to us. And if Jesus was not our savior, it's still meaningless. It's because he's God and because he suffered for us that everything we go through is temporary. We'll never be separated from God. Because Jesus was. We have hope because Jesus took our suffering. You say, but I'm still suffering. Yeah, but it'll be okay. How do you know it'll be okay? Because the Son of God came to this earth to die for you. So you don't have to. You don't have to die for you. So when you die, it must be better. That's what Christmas has to offer us. None of this will look You'll you'll see none of this in the world. You'll see none of this in your life. You'll see no evidence of any of this. You'll never see a baby lying in a manger who rises from the dead. You know why? It's already happened. You'll never see angels proclaiming this. So how do you know it's true? There's a message here. You have to believe the message. And you have to realize that the message is telling you that we are profoundly lonely, profoundly, desperately needy in such a way that not a thing we have can improve our situation. But God stepped in, came down to us, and took it for us. Born into poverty, dying in suffering for us. See, the Christ, the Messiah who is a warrior, is here to destroy evil. And if he'd showed up to destroy evil, we wouldn't exist. There's only one way to get rid of evil, and that's get rid of evil people. So what does the warrior do? He shows up before that and says, I'll fight for the people so that when I come back the next time, I won't have to kill them. I'll come back and I'll save them, bring them with me. Christ is still a just and noble warrior who fights evil. But he was born as a little tiny baby and died as a disgrace so that he wouldn't have to kill us. And instead of killing us, he died for us. But there's a warning in this message. If you reject this message, there's nothing for you. You reject God born into a manger, you get God the judge. Believe the message. Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for this day is born to you. Right now, you, a Savior. You just need to admit it. Admit your weakness and look at Jesus saving you. Let's pray.